Welcome to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We are glad you were able to join us for this year's COVID edition of our symposium, all online. And we do hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. We want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K-12 classical education by visiting the Exhibitors tab in the Virtual Attendee Hub. In this session, we will be hearing from Mr. John Mays on Integration, the Key to Teaching Science Classically. Following the presentation, Mr. Mays will be here live to answer questions from the audience. You may submit your questions during the presentation by clicking on the Q&A button on the right side of your screen. Finally, we would like to thank Classical Academic Press and Centripetal Press for their sponsorship of this session. Hello everyone, I'm John Mays, Director of Science Curriculum at Classical Academic Press and founder of Navari Science and Centripetal Press. This talk is about how integration is one of the keys to teaching science classically. I'll mention right at the beginning that although my title says the key, there are other important key facets to teaching science classically. One is making the pursuit of uh, truth, goodness, and beauty in science studies a reality. It is not hard to find ways to hit on goodness and beauty if we stimulate the student's innate sense of wonder in every lesson. The notion of wonder at the natural world goes back at least to Plato and is found in Aristotle and Aquinas as well. As for truth, I'll hit on that in a few minutes. Yet another facet to teaching science classically is the restoration of Aristotle's four causes. That of course is touchy because it gets us into teleology, but we don't have to bring religion into the classroom to address the idea of purpose in nature. Even atheists such as uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel have acknowledged the mystery of purpose in nature and certainly the fact that creatures such as humans exhibit and are driven by a sense of purpose is plain to see. But all these other aspects of teaching science classically are subjects for another talk. We are gonna focus on integration in this talk. I want to begin with some context. In 1999, I began teaching at a classical school in Austin, Texas. During my first years there, I had three educational challenges in mind. The first was the near universal underperformance of students in American schools in science and math. I began calling this the cram pass forget cycle. Students cram for tests, pass them, and then forget almost everything they crammed within about three weeks. I became aware that this destructive cycle was the normal MO 
in nearly every secondary classroom in America and was the reason why so many students exhibit such low levels of proficiency. In most schools, low proficiency is apparent in every subject. In classical schools, student proficiency is often dramatically higher in reading and writing than national norms. But in science and math, student proficiency tends to be low everywhere. I wanna share a graphic which, with you. Uh, this, this graphic uh, sort of summarizes my campaign against the cram, pass, forget cycle. I uh, came with, up with this uh, almost 15 years ago and I've been using it ever since. I want to get rid of this destructive cycle. All right. The second challenge of the three that I mentioned was that in 1999, there was almost no literature available on how to teach science classically. And science teaching at classical schools throughout the country seemed to be conducted no differently from how science was taught everywhere else. In the absence of some guidance, teachers tend to teach the way we were taught. The literature on classical education for the past 30 years or so has included a lot on how to teach humanities courses, some on the grammar, logic, rhetoric stages of development, and a tiny bit on mathematics, and almost nothing on teaching science classically. The third challenge was that science texts were often ugly, inaccurate, and enormous. Now, I addressed the third challenge by starting my own publishing company and spending the last 15 years writing and publishing secondary science texts. I'm not gonna talk any more about that than I have to. I'll have to bring it up once or twice, but that's it. The result of my reading, research and experimentation in the early 2000s was a powerful new teaching model for science that addresses the first two challenges, the cram pass forget cycle and the need for informing principles to teach science classically. The model is based on mastery learning and the mastery learning components are so powerful that the model is a game changer for the problem of underperformance, the cram pass forget cycle. Instead, I began seeing every student in the class reaching at least a B level of proficiency and all students displaying long-term retention of proficiency in the learning objectives for the course. The mastery learning component of my teaching model is supported by two other components, a focus on wonder and the integration of four key disciplines into science instruction. And I'll show you another graphic to illustrate this. All right, so here's this other graphic. You see, I've got a, got a pyramid, wonder at the bottom, the entry point for all our instruction integration supported by wonder and four key areas of integration, which we will be discussing. And then together, these two forming the uh, robust foundation for mastery learning where students reach uh, really high levels of proficiency and long-term retention. The whole model is described in this new book, which has just come out, published by Centripetal Press, called From Wonder to Mastery, a transformative model for science education. 
Uh, all right, as we go, uh, when I need to refer to the teaching model itself in this talk, I will refer to it as the FWTM model uh, taken from the title of my new book. The integration component of the FT, FWTM model is the subject for this talk. The four key areas I'm going to discuss are epistemology, mathematics, history, and language. We begin with epistemology, which is the philosophical study of how we know what we know and what it means to know things. Of the four areas of integration, epistemology takes the most time to unpack. The way I use the term, epistemology entails ideas such as the nature of scientific knowledge, a proper understanding of theories and hypotheses, and the way theories and hypotheses work together with experiments, observations, and other scientific tools to allow science to move forward. You may have noticed that this emphasis on epistemology has gained a lot of traction in recent years. Science standards and research reports are emphasizing as never before the importance of understanding the nature and role of theories and the specific characteristics of scientific knowledge. This is a welcome change from the way things were just a few years ago, when content emphasized was emphasized almost exclusively. Now let's talk for a few minutes about the nature of scientific knowledge. In short, scientific knowledge is both provisional, subject to change, and corrigible, subject to correction. The notions of being provisional and corrigible apply to both scientific facts and scientific theories. The problem is that most people regard scientific facts as true, but they're not regarded this way by scientists. Scientists say that scientific facts are correct so far as we know, but even our most stable scientific facts fall short of the absolute truth about nature and are subject to change as new discoveries are made. And the history of science is full of facts that proved later to be incorrect. As a quick example, I'm sure you are all aware of how Pluto was formerly classified as a planet, but was removed from the list of planets back in 2006. This was because scientists had discovered numerous other objects in our solar system of a size similar to Pluto's. So rather than have numerous new planets, we have one fewer planet. Notice that the scientific fact of how many planets there are changed. There were nine and now there are eight. But notice also that during the time when having nine planets was regarded as a scientific fact, the scientific fact was false. Even according to the definition that was in place back then, there were more than nine objects out there that met the definition. So there was more to the truth about reality than we knew. The truth, by definition, is the way things really are. And we don't have access to knowing the things the way things really are. What science does is make models of the natural world that we use to unify and explain the scientific facts we have. These models are our theories. Most people assume that a theory is something that is like a hunch that is speculative until it is proven. 
in reality, no, no theory is ever proven. Instead, we use theories to construct scientific predictions known as hypotheses that are tested by experiments. The results of these experiments is data that either supports the hypothesis and thus the theory it came from, or it doesn't support them. If it does, then the theory is strengthened by the new knowledge, the new scientific facts. Our best theories are strongly supported by the results of many experiments, but even this strong support doesn't prove a theory. Scientists regard widely accepted theories as our best explanations. And these explanations are hopefully getting closer and closer to the truth about nature. It is a wonderful thing that humans have this capability to get closer and closer to the truth about nature in this way. Now I call the way fact, theory, hypothesis, and experiment interact to move science forward, the cycle of scientific enterprise. And I illustrate it with this graphic. So I'll share my screen one more time. So over on the left, we have several green ovals representing various scientific facts that we have. And then a theory is our explanation of these facts, tying them together, accounting for them. Then from the theory, a hypothesis is formed, an informed prediction based on a theory. And this hypothesis is put to the test in an experiment. Now, the results of the experiment then are subjected to analysis. Are they consistent with the theory we started with? In other words, do the results of the experiment support the hypothesis or do they not? If they do, which is what we expect, then these results become new facts which our theory accounts for. If our experimental results are not, do not support the hypothesis, we say uh, no, and we go over here to a um, consideration of why, which I'm calling a review. And essentially we have to go backwards around the circle to figure out why our experimental results do not support the hypothesis and the theory. So the first thing we can look at is the experiment to consider if it was properly conducted, if there was anything wrong with the equipment or, or the data collection methods. Uh, if that reveals nothing, then we're back to the hypothesis. Maybe it was uh, inappropriate or uh, not, not actually valid based on the theory that it came from. If nothing can be figured out there, we're back to the theory itself. And we have a new fact that the theory does not account for. This is called an anomaly. And even our best theories have always have anomalies that we have to take into consideration. All right, now the nature of science is such that for a person to know something about science, the person must understand the difference between absolute truth and the provisional and corrigible claims of science. This is why the integration of epistemology into science instruction is so essential. It is perhaps worth noting that in this regard, science has more in common with history than it does with mathematics. Mathematics does lead to truth through the use of valid logic, beginning with true premises 
new mathematical truths are discovered. But like science, historical knowledge consists of interpretations of data. Those interpretations may be correct or they may be incorrect. And our confidence in a historical interpretation is based on the quality and the amount of the evidence we have supporting a particular interpretation. This is how science is as well. The amount of evidence we have that matter is composed of atoms is extensive. This evidence is the data we have from thousands and thousands of experiments conducted over the past 200 years. Scientific confidence in this atomic hypothesis is very high, but there is always the possibility that there is more to the story or that for 200 years, we have been misinterpreting key data. Thinking about the recent evidence for dark matter, for example, and what this might be or what it might mean for our overall understanding of what matter is, is humbling because we realize that there is still a lot we don't know. In the face of such vast ignorance, we recognize that claims to have discovered the absolute truth about nature must always be regarded as out of place. Instead, we hold our interpretations to be provisional, knowing that they may be changed or corrected in the future. It is also worth noting that the two most widely successful theories in the 20th century science, the general theory of relativity and quantum theory, are known to be in conflict. These two scientific theories are the pillars of science, but at least one of them and perhaps both of them are still lacking. This has been known for over half a century and still scientists have no clear notion of how these two theories can be reconciled. As Gary Zukov wrote in the Tao of Physics in 1979, quote, this extraordinary theory clearly is a free creation of the human mind. It is not necessarily how nature really is. It is only a mental construction which correctly predicts what nature is probably going to do next. There might be and probably are other mental constructs that can do as good a job as this one or better, although physicists have not been able to think of them. The most that we can say about this or any other theory is not whether it is true or not, but only whether it works or not. That is, whether it does what it is supposed to do." End quote. The second essential area of integration with science is mathematics. This may seem obvious to many of you, but there are some successful conceptual treatments out there of physics and chemistry purporting to leave most or all of the math out. I taught from two of these myself for a few years, but eventually I began noticing that students were missing an important link in their experience of the unity of knowledge. They were also missing opportunities to put their science knowledge to use in practical problem applications and thus missing a way to help deepen and solidify their knowledge. For example, if one understands the notion of density, one doesn't really have to depend on memorizing the formula for computing the density of an object. An object's density is a measure of the amount of matter packed into a certain amount of space, that is, the ratio of an object's mass 
to its volume. Understanding this means that one doesn't have to memorize D equals M over V. One just knows to divide the mass by the volume. If a person doesn't know this or writes D equals M times V, then the person can hardly be said to understand anything about density at all. So I began writing problem sets to go along with the texts I was using and I almost immediately made another discovery. Given correct placement and adequate instruction, all the students can work these problems, even those whose aptitude for mathematics is most limited. This is because the integration I'm talking about was implemented in a mastery learning environment. Students that didn't have the option of underperforming. They saw the computational problems week after week and the only course of action open to them if they wanted to pass was to become proficient at solving the problems. But what I saw was that they all did. And those who had previously struggled with math became proficient problem solvers to an extent that they had previously thought to be impossible. Just imagine the effect this has on a teenager's self-image. It is life-changing, which is why I call the FWTM model transformative. The many success stories I have seen in this area have been nothing short of astonishing. Over and over, I've seen students changed from being feckless teenagers who never gained proficiency at all, particularly in mathematical applications, to expert problem solvers who know they know how to solve problems. And this is a wonderful thing. Here is just one of many such stories I could tell. Years ago, I had a student who everybody loved, but whose academic abilities were so limited that the counselors, administrators, and faculty were thinking that the student might not be able to continue attending the school. We had a big conference at the start of the school year with the student and his parents and all the counselors and administrators and faculty members about this. Sure enough, as the year got underway, the student began failing every class. In my class, he began failing the weekly quizzes. And by the time uh, the first quarter report cards came out, he had Fs in every academic class, including math and science. But I realized that although this young man couldn't write coherently or respond well to questions requiring a free response, he could follow well-rehearsed steps. And this is essentially what solving problems in introductory physics is, following the steps of a well-known problem-solving procedure until you arrive at the answer. Along the way, free thinking isn't necessary. All you need is the conversion factors and equations you have in your memory, along with a well-rehearsed ability to follow the solution strategy. So I, as a desperate measure, I began encouraging him that although he had always regarded the math as a write-off, the math was the opposite for him. It was the place where he could garner enough points that he would be able to begin earning passing grades. He took my advice and began practicing the computations in earnest. He used his flashcards to rehearse the metric prefixes, physical constants, and conversion factors. And almost miraculously, his scores began to rise. 
I'll never forget running out in the hall to find him and tell him the day his quiz score finally went above 70. And again, when it went uh, up to 83. And again, when it topped 90 for the first time. He ended the year with a low B average, the only class he passed. But his attitude toward what he was capable of, both in science and in math, was transformed. This was an emotional time for both of us, and more than once we both had tears in our eyes. All this happened because I insisted on including a lot of math in the course, and again presented it in the context of the FWTM mastery learning model. The third area of integration for us to discuss is history. Thinking back to our discussion of epistemology, the supreme way for students to really understand the cycle of scientific enterprise and how science works is through seeing it in action in historical episodes, such as the development of our atomic models, the Copernican revolution, the evolution of our understanding that living organisms come from parent organisms, and so on. In this regard, I like to quote the Romantic era novelist and historian of science, Wolfgang Goethe, who wrote in 1810 that the history of science is science itself. Studying how scientific discoveries have emerged through historical instances of the cycle of scientific enterprise is just as important as the presentation of the facts and theories that usually consumes all our class time. In my remarks so far, I have tried to stay away from mentioning our texts and curriculum, but here I need to mention that when it comes to integrating history into science classes, the curriculum can either help or hinder. Most science texts tend to treat the history as something other than the main thing. And historical comments are relegated to sidebars where they can be ignored. Students see this formatting and subconsciously assume that the history is not that important. Our curriculum is not like this. The history is treated as prominently in the main body of the text along with the other content. And learning objectives about historical material are listed along with learning objectives for the scientific definitions, principles, facts, and theories. Students are well used to texts and classes where these points of integration are stripped away and where history is treated as something other than essential. For students to think of the history as significant and as part of the main thing, the text needs to present it as such and the teachers need to treat it as such in lessons and on quizzes and on tests. And again, the mastery learning environment ensures that once students are conversant with scientists' key contributions and with the historical benchmarks in the development of our scientific models, they remember it because they rehearse it over and over. And questions arise repeatedly on quizzes, requiring them to demonstrate once again that they can describe the Copernican revolution or the history of the atomic model or whatever. The fourth and final area of integration is language. One of the hugely important distinguishing characteristics of humans is that we are language users and the development of facility with using language is one of the most important objectives in education 
through the study of people who are deaf and blind, such as Helen Keller, Walker Percy, one of my favorite novelists, has shown that language is a prerequisite for rational thought itself. Some of you may have seen the 1962 film, The Miracle Worker. I highly recommend it. The film shows how Helen Keller was as a young child prior to her breakthrough. She lived an essentially feral life, living by instinct and devoid of anything we would recognize as rational thought. Then came the breakthrough when her tutor, Ann Sullivan, poured water on Helen while signing the word W-A-T-E-R into her hand. Suddenly, Helen realized what Ann Sullivan had been communicating to her, that things have names. Helen exploded into life and began running around touching one object after another while Ann Sullivan signed its name into her hand. It didn't take long for Helen with her rational intellect suddenly switched on by the acquisition of language to become a fluent reader and accomplished writer. Now, given the crucial role of language in human life, and the critical need humans have throughout their lives to communicate clearly, the development of facility with language needs to be one of the highest priorities in the school, in every school. Classical educators have always known this, and an emphasis on reading and writing is one of the hallmarks of every classical school. And this means that testing by questions using multiple choice, true, false, and other so-called objective formats should have no place in classical education. There's nothing classical at all about those testing formats. They are modern developments that exist solely to make testing and grading more convenient for the teacher. But schools don't exist for the convenience of the teacher. Schools exist to provide the best possible education for the human beings that are their students. In science, Nearly every question on an assessment should be one of two types, problems that students solve with a computation or verbal questions students address with written answers composed of complete sentences. There is a world of difference between picking between sentences composed by someone else and synthesizing your own words to address a scientific question. And while we are scoring their answers, we science teachers need to hold the students accountable for grammar, spelling, syntax, and logical coherence, as well as for the technical accuracy of their response. Of course, responses like these take longer to grade, but that's what we are here for. Well, that's what I've got on making your classes classical through integration, epistemology, mathematics, history, and language. These points of integration are not analogous to the dessert with a meal, something that is nice to have, but not essential. Instead, they are like the wheels on a car, essential to make it go. And now we'll transition to the live Q&A.
Excellent. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Mays. Uh, really great presentation. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, a couple questions have come in already. So to our, our audience uh, online, you know, feel free to keep submitting those questions and even to vote on the ones that are there. Uh, I think I will just get us started, uh, maybe kicked off here by returning to the first category you mentioned, which is epistemology. Uh, I think actually your presentation does a really superb job of, of rescuing uh, culture from one extreme, right? Uh, which is to see something that we might call scientism, to see science as the only source of objective truth and to have sort of uh, you know, un, un, infallible trust in the discipline itself. Uh, and, and the way in which you, you explored the importance of history, the, the self-correcting nature of science, I think does quite a bit to correct uh, culture from, from going to that extreme. But there might be another extreme that culture tends towards, which, which would be some sort of extreme skepticism. Now, I know skepticism is a, a part of the scientific method itself to, to, to doubt until there is evidence, uh, but I'm speaking here of, of, of an extreme skepticism uh, that might take the attitude of if science, if scientific knowledge is destined for self-correction, then how are we able to have any confidence in the, the current truth uh, being proclaimed by science? So uh, how would you respond to avoiding that second uh, extreme? Well, I have several ideas. Um, first, I would say um, that it's healthy for us to understand the reality about what we know. So um, it's unhealthy to inhabit either of the extremes that you outlined, and we should recognize that, all right? So we should admit that um, we don't know the truth about absolute reality. Um, and, and that's a healthy recognition of our own uh, epistemological limitations. The second thing I would say about it is um, just because um, we aren't making truth claims as scientists uh, doesn't mean that what we know about science isn't valid. That, that's, scientific knowledge has validity as our present understanding, even if that uh, understanding is uh, incomplete. Uh, we know it's, uh, even if it's incomplete, we know the our present understanding possesses what uh, one writer calls verisimilitude, likeness to the truth. Um, so, and we also know that, um, this verisimilitude is actually very useful. So um, general relativity may not be the last word on gravity. There might be something that we don't know yet that needs to be added to the theory of general relativity. But that doesn't mean that the theory of general relativity hasn't been useful. Because even if it's incomplete or, or in some uh, aspect, uh, incorrect. It's so close to the reality, and it might be the reality about nature, we just don't know. But it, whether it is or what it isn't, it's so close that it has proved very useful in um, allowing us more discoveries about nature and more understanding about the nature of gravity and the way things behave. I mean, we've even recently had um, 
some very convincing scientific uh, discoveries uh, confirming the presence of gravity waves, uh, or at least supporting the presence of gravity waves, which is one of the predictions Einstein made based on his general theory. So uh, just because we know there are limits to what we know doesn't mean that what we do know is uh, lacking in validity. So it's useful and it's still valid. And what we're doing is just recognizing that we don't have a godlike knowledge about nature and we never will. Great, thank you. Uh, Mr. Hayes, we have a question that's come in through the live Q&A here. Uh, can you speak to the quality of the common core and the next generation science standards approach to science education? Well, I, uh, in my recorded comments, you recall one of the things I said early on was that new standards are bringing forth a, a new emphasis on the epistemological issue. Um, in particular, the general public's understanding of what a theory is has been really poor for many decades and is fueling various controversies. Um, and uh, this is the fault of the scientists and the scientific educators for allowing our country to have a general misunderstanding of what a theory is so that we can mock them as, a, you know, you don't have to believe that, that's just a theory, that's just somebody's theory. Well, that's just not an appropriate way to talk about theories. As I like to say, theories are a good theory is they are the goal and glory and final product of science. So um, we need to be about helping the public and our students to understand this. And uh, the first thing we have to do is start emphasizing this epistemology. What are theories? How do they work? What is their role in the cycle of scientific enterprise and so on? And the Common Core uh, is really big on this. So uh, I, there's a lot about the Common Core I haven't studied. I, I, um, it's so complex and difficult to navigate that it's intimidating. And I haven't spent the time yet to really uh, sort through all of it. But I have uh, looked at some of it. And the first thing I noticed is this very strong emphasis on not only um, epistemological issues, but on a better understanding of the uh, broad spectrum of tools that scientists bring to their work, all right? It's not just the scientific method. There's discourse, there's criticism, there's the skepticism that you uh, referred to earlier. Um, there, there's uh, writing papers, publishing them, interacting with other scientists, collaborating with people, working in teams. Uh, there's so many tools that need to be brought to the attention of our students so that they have a better idea of science as a process. This is another thing that's in the core is a recognition of science as process. My definition of science has the word process in it as the first term that occurs after the first two terms. Science is the, you know, science is the process of using certain tools to develop um, theories, models about nature. 
So um, all, all these are all things that are very strong in the common core, and I'm happy to see. Um, so there are other aspects to the common core that are less helpful, like some of the ways that the subject matter is um, divvied up for you know coverage in different years. And I know a lot of charter schools have had trouble with this. Uh, you know, I personally am not in favor of an approach that would say, oh, let's take a third of the year and do life science and a third of the year do physical and a third of the year of earth. It's just very unhelpful to do that. Uh, it's disruptive and it's, uh, it, it thwarts our efforts at achieving mastery because proficiency sometimes takes students uh, a while to attain. And if we cut it off and switch subjects before they have attained it, then, and move on, then uh, you know we're subverting the proficiency, uh, the acquisition of the proficiency we want to see, and we're subverting our um, ability to uh, cultivate long-term retention by constantly having the students practice what we've taught them. So. Um, different states have approached that particular issue in different ways, but um, it's a challenge right now. Great, the, the next question actually builds upon that. You, you mentioned the importance of mastery uh, and maybe why it, it would be better to focus uh, for, for an entire year on something so you can, can work towards building that. The question here is how do you define mastery uh, and how do you know when you have it? How, how do you, or at least how do you know when your students have it? How do you go about assessing it? So what do we mean by mastery? Uh, and, and how do you go about assessing whether or not students have that? I define mastery as a level of competence or proficiency that would, um, that would garner an, an A or a B, regular, repeatable A or B in the assessments. And while the assessments themselves are cumulative in nature to the start of the year. So, um, so all the learning objectives that we assign in chapter one and two and so on, once we've covered them, then for the rest of the year on the quizzes and tests, the students are subject to seeing questions that go back to those objectives time after time after time. If a student can maintain a B on the quizzes or an A, when when under this cumulative quiz or cumulative test drill, then they know what they're doing, all right? They don't know what they're doing if they can only do it one time. And then we go on to chapter three or five and we're safe now because that problem that I don't really know how to do is never gonna come up again until this final exam. But if they can do it every time, and for younger students, I use a weekly quiz instead of chapter tests for grades seven through nine. So if they can do this week after week at like not see a density problem for, for a month and then suddenly there's one on a quiz and they just ride away, okay, I know how to do this. And uh, then they have mastered that skill. So, um, and like I said, A or B level is uh, a consistent scoring A or B level is uh, my definition of what constitutes the level of competence or proficiency that I will call mastery. Um, long-term retention is a side effect. It's, uh, it's a, you can think of it as different from mastery, but to me, it goes together. If, if I, if I can jump through a hoop 
that someone is set or cross over a bar, you know, to change the metaphor, um, one time, then, which is a common way of talking about mastery in schools is, well, everybody has to make a 95 on this test. But to me, that that is not an adequate definition of mastery. All right. I don't want, I don't want my fellow citizens out there to remember for one day what those red octagons mean that you see on the street corners. I want them to remember every day what they mean so that I don't get killed when I'm driving around. So that means mastery of this concept and long-term retention of what a stop sign is and what it tells you you have to do. So uh, to accomplish this in science, the, the key is to leverage what is called in the research literature, the testing effect, or the, also called the practice effect. And basically it's this, that the literature shows that the more frequently a person recalls something, the more long-term retention is built. So this can occur in a couple of ways in a, in a classroom environment. One can be very frequent appearance of questions on quizzes. That's why this weekly quiz is so powerful for younger students. They are seeing these same questions week after week after week. So they constantly have to remember what are Newton's three laws of motion? Say them again, say them again. They just never can forget them. Um, but another way it occurs is when students rehearse, and when they practice, to be prepared for the cumulative quizzes, they need to constantly rehearse what they've learned in prior chapters. And I teach the students that to do this, you don't, don't read over your notes. That isn't taking advantage of the practice effect. What you have to do is respond to prompts by rehearsing your response. And I tell kids to, uh, you know, ninth graders or so, I tell them, you know, get your cat or your teddy bear, and once again, uh, describe to your cat um, the three ways heat transfer happens, or the three ways static electricity forms, or Newton's laws of motion, or Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Say them again. Don't look at your notes. Say them again. Say them again. So it's this practicing uh, for your review time, and it's the practice that happens during weekly quizzes when you're seeing the same questions over and over. These let these these are the things that the research shows build long-term retention. So, so there's a technique here that results in long-term retention. But the thing is, I define mastery as mastery is of no use if we don't retain the proficiency that we've gained. So to me, high proficiency and long-term retention, they go together to define my overall concept that I call mastery. Excellent. Let's let's stay with assessments for a little bit here. Uh, so you spoke a lot about what makes a, a high quality assessment. Uh, the, the next question coming in, I think, if I read it right, uh, is is a little bit more practical. How would you recommend uh, for for teachers? How would you recommend they go about creating tests that follow your suggestion of being application based, um, having students do a written synthesis or analysis, uh, uh, you know, uh, various things like that, especially for students who might lack uh, the writing skills, uh, or for students who are in elementary school who, who don't yet have the developed writing skills. So I, I, if I read it correctly, it's not so much questioning the nature of the assessment, but how teachers go about making good decisions based on the abilities of, of students, and then just practical advice you have for, for teachers in creating those sorts of, of assessments. Whew, uh, there's a lot in that question. I'll try to 
kind of hit on some things briefly. Um, first of all, those using our curriculum, uh, the assessments are part of the curriculum. So teachers don't have to write their own uh, quizzes and tests. Um, the, the quizzes and tests are supplied in the form of Word documents. So they can start with what we've got and they can edit them uh, as needed. Um, but if you are in a situation where you have to write your own assessments, um, here are some of the things that, that I keep in mind when I'm writing these. Um, I use, as I said, weekly quizzes for grades seven through nine. Uh, it's, it's very powerful just to break out of this chapter idea. It helps students get a little further away from this cram pass forget cycle because the quizzes are, the weekly quizzes are not connected to the start and finish of a chapter. We start and finish chapters as they will, but the weekly quiz just rolls on like a machine, no matter what's happening with where we are in the book. So students begin to disconnect preparedness for a quiz with getting through some particular chapter. Um, we have to switch to chapter tests eventually because that's the way the upper you know, world works. So in 10th grade, we switch to chapter exams, but we make those cumulative too by uh, including about 25% of the credit on the test um, being connected to objectives from prior chapters. On the weekly quizzes, it's more like 50%. So like half the quiz is questions from prior chapters and about half is questions from things we've studied within the last couple of weeks. On the chapter, on, on the uh, weekly quizzes, my typical format is to, uh, now, you know, I'm, let me uh, refer to uh, physics uh, here for a minute. Uh, so this would apply to physical science and um, introductory physics for ninth graders. Um, I, my format, my quiz is so that 45% of the quiz is computational. And that would typically, not all the time, but typically mean three 15 point computations. Uh, I put them on the front side of the quiz and they take up that whole side. And then on the back, there's a total of 55 points worth of verbal questions. Sometimes these questions would just be something like distinguish between mass, matter, and inertia. So a student can address that question well if they know the definitions of those three terms. So they pretty much just have to write the definitions. So uh, not a lot of imagination is needed. Uh, but another question might be something like explain how a how a electric generator works. So to do that, they have to bring together uh, quite a few different things. They have to start with the physical um, arrangement of the parts so that they can refer to them, the axle with a rotor, and uh, you know external magnets producing a magnetic field. Then they have to talk about the the um, different magnetic principles involved, and they have to name them. Faraday's law of induction, Ampere's law. And so they have to describe which of those are being leveraged where in the process of generating electricity, uh, you know, that we have an engine that's making the axle turn. And, it's, and then we have the, you know, induction, Faraday's law of induction kicking in to uh, make electric current flow because you know, because of the uh, interaction between the, the coils on the rotor and the magnetic fields in the stator. So um, 
that's that's a typical you know that would be a long question on that backside because that that's a complicated question so i wouldn't put more than one question of that complexity onto a single quiz so then i try to make a blend of complex questions uh, historical questions like tell us about galileo i might put a question on there that would be like that real short question but the students have a one paragraph bio of Galileo queued up with uh, key dates, key discoveries, um, and so on. So, uh, and I've told them, you know, in advance, that's what I want. So get it, get it, get it on your flashcards, drill it with yourself and be ready to tell me about Newton or Einstein or Galileo whenever they come up. So that would be kind of an intermediate level question. And then there are the more straightforward ones like, you know, definitions that you can memorize that are one sentence long. So uh, I put different, uh, you know, links and levels of questions like that together to build up that last 55% on the backside of the quiz. So that's how I, uh, th those are some of the parameters. Of course, it's really difficult the first time you do this to write a quiz. My quizzes are all designed to be taken and completed within 30 minutes. So it's a 30 minute quiz that happens every single week at the exact same time. Uh, so students can do this very efficiently because they know the drill. They've got their calculator out and their pen and pencil in their hand before the bell even rings. And so when the bell rings, I'm standing there passing papers out. And so, you know, the quiz is over 31 minutes after class starts. But um, the first time you do it, of course, uh, you might your quiz might be uh, too long, too complicated. The problems are too hard and students can't complete it in the, the requisite 30 minutes. So what I do is walk around in class at you know about 24 minutes into the quiz and I'm looking over their shoulders seeing where we are and if I'm seeing everybody is still got a lot of un, you know clear paper um, I'll tell them look I this quiz is too long so I'm going to give you an extra five minutes and they all breathe a sigh of relief and redouble their efforts and then before next year I will you know figure out what made that quiz uh, longer than I wanted it to be I found that um, really good students uh, who study hard and and so on uh, can complete my quizzes usually in about 20 minutes and they use the last 10 to proof it and the uh, less capable students will work like mad right up to the final moment but they'll get it done so uh, the fa uh, final part of the question was uh, addressing elementary school um, my the thing i think about elementary school is that um, you we do need to have assessments like uh, in elementary school, but they play a far less significant role. In a secondary school, your these assessments, quizzes, and tests uh, should comprise uh, something like 80% of the student's grade. This is the nature of the assessments. That This is where you're showing that you know what you're doing. You can do it over and over. This is show me the money time is on the assessments. Um, but in elementary school, uh, the assessments like that are should have far less impact on the student's grade. A student in uh, you know in third grade is much more. We're much more interested in the student demonstrating a really strong uh, inclination toward participation, toward uh, asking good questions, toward uh, uh, showing a great deal of care in the work they turn in, whether it's a project or something being diligent to complete you know their little chart showing that they've done their 20 minutes of reading every day 
Um, we're trying to cultivate uh, good character, strong character, and form good habits, and cultivate a good attitude toward learning. So all the activities that we do that um, can can have the students participating in these ways, these are the things that sh they should be uh, getting marked well for. That's where their grade comes in. And then, of course, we have um, you know math fact quizzes, and we have uh, maybe science fact quizzes and other things like that that we will use as well. But this is not; these are not going to be eighty percent of the students' grade at that uh, down in those grades. They have a much less uh, of a possibility of of ruining the students' year. Um, but we want to, of course, increase the uh, role of the assessments uh, year by year, and then maybe the big step is when they enter seventh grade. Great. Well, we have about three minutes here. I want to try to slide one more question in that's of a little bit different nature. Uh, the works of Aristotle were mentioned, uh, along with his four causes. Should the study of Aristotle's work be a part of a full science curriculum? Well, I don't think so, is the short answer. Um, Aristotle is interesting to read, but uh, most of his physics was wrong. Most of his biology was uh, also uh, uh, not, not very useful. So uh, Aristotle's philosophy is much more useful for today than his science was. And there's a lot in the curriculum so I do enjoy uh, finding places where students can experience the classics, uh, particularly with respect to science. But um, I, haven't, I haven't found that Aristotle is one of the places to do that. Okay, great. Uh, I think we actually can slide uh, maybe a quick one in here. Uh, what books do you recommend for learning uh, uh, the history of science? Any book recommendations? Oh, wow. Um, look, I think each presenter has a list of resources, and I think I've put some of those on there. But um, I mean, there's so there's so many. Uh, Galileo's Mistake is one that I really love that gets at, the, gets at that issue, Galileo. Uh, the Making of the Atomic Bomb is fast, fabulous. It, in, in its pages, it's a huge book, and it's historically quite you know, part of a very fascinating period in our history that's not that long ago, but it covers pretty much all of 20th century physics, uh, history of 20th century physics in that one volume uh, because of all the nuclear research discoveries that led be before they ever started working on the Man Manhattan Project. Um, some others, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions is important by Thomas Kuhn. Um, uh, I, if anybody wants, if anybody wants to join me in the uh, vendor booth, uh, the virtual vendor booth for Classical Academic Press after this, I can maybe give you some more titles. Um, uh, I think the way to find this place is to go into the the exhibitors tab and uh, click on Cla Classical Academic Press, and then click on join the virtual meeting. And I'm planning to go there right now and uh, hang out there for a little while. So if you want to come and talk more about that, I'll, I can give you some more. 
Excellent. Well, that, that serves actually as a perfect wrap up. So I want to thank you, Mr. Mays, for your time. I had the great pleasure of sitting through this session yesterday as well. I found it very informative. Uh, certainly, I feel smarter uh, and more, more well-educated after sitting through your, your presentation. I want to thank you for your time uh, and your energies in promoting science, uh, particularly in a classical setting. Uh, for our audience, please check out the virtual attendee hub for the recommended resources, as Mr. Mays said, related to this topic. Uh, join us in one of the digital rooms uh, of the forum at 1.30 to discuss presentations and resources with other practitioners and leaders. And please complete a brief survey to let us know your thoughts on this session. Uh, the survey link should be located below the video. Once again, thank you to Mr. Mays. Uh, thank you to our audience. Uh, and we wish you the best as you wrap up this year's symposium in more of the afternoon sessions.